0: Ever wonder why the sound of the coffee grinder across the office annoys you? Well, it might be many things, but some of them could be its high volume, high frequency, and the fact that you can't see its source.
1: And just from a evolutionary point of view, you are going to be distracted by it to try and sort of have some identification to know that it's not going to be any sort of a threat. So... Even a pleasant sound where you're not quite sure where it's coming from could have sort of the similar distraction.
0: That's Holly Taylor, professor of cognitive psychology I had at Dartmouth College. Since 1860, when Gustav Fechner coined the name of the field, people have been formally studying the field of psychoacoustics, how sound affects the human mind and body. More recently, studies in cognitive neuroscience have explored its effects even more.
2: Our whole understanding of... Human environmental experience was being radically shifted by these discoveries in cognitive neuroscience and environmental psychology, and that no one had um, had really looked at how to take the information that we now have about how people experience environments um, and the relationship of cognition to the environment. Um, and reconceptualize what that meant for the design of the built environment.
3: That's Sarah Williams-Goldhagen, one of the nation's chief architectural critics and author of the book, Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives. In her book, she reveals how we should use these findings in cognitive psychology and neuroscience to construct a world better suited to the human experience. Her book was a big source of inspiration for us as we've been diving into the importance of auditory perception in the built environment. So, what really is the human environmental experience?
0: This is Fellows in the Field, a podcast from SQ Dumez Ripple, exploring architecture at the intersection of science and humanity. I'm Sam, here with Hannah, and this time we're talking about what the sonic environment does to us humans. Winston Churchill famously said, We shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. This quote is thrown around a lot, but do we really understand its significance? And did he? If you've ever taken a philosophy class, you might have heard of the classic mind-body dualism. It basically gets into the question of the unity or separation of the mind and the body. Are we a mind that controls our bodies or a body that controls our mind?
3: According to our research, we might want to consider it more of a mind-body environment condition. Our environments have a much bigger impact on our psyches and bodies than most of us give credit.
2: You realize, okay, so, you know, you walk into certain environments And they make you quote-unquote feel certain ways, and there are really quite explicable reasons why. And you can identify them, and you can say, wow, if you use masonry, you're going to get a totally different interior effect than if you use wood.
3: Architects often try to design spaces with a certain feel or mood, and while the designers, hopefully, know of its importance, pragmatic clients might think that the consideration of the feeling or mood to be frivolous. According to Goldhagen's experience in academics, human experience has historically been disregarded even by designers in favor of formal exploration.
2: For various reasons, it it wasn't a conversation that I was hearing a lot, and it was a conversation that in some cases I heard actively discouraged. Phenomenology.
3: That is, the study of human experience, in this case, in built spaces. It was kind of a dirty
2: word, and people were very interested in formal innovation.
0: In our last episode, we discussed how we physically and emotionally sense the space around us through acoustics. This episode, we're taking that a step further, looking into how our bodies and psyches respond to the soundscapes around us. Here, we'll provide some more credibility and extra evidence to back up your experience-driven decisions regarding sound.
2: You know, I'm out there all the time trying to show people who are buying built environments how much more they need to value design and educating practitioners in the built environment of the importance of these considerations.
0: That's Goldhagen again.
2: So I do think it's going to change. Uh, I think it already is changing to some extent, Um, although those changes are in sectors that are not particularly um, well attended to,
3: they're small, But, but that will, that's going to change. Every aspect of a building has the potential to impact us. If a building isn't positively affecting us, chances are it's negatively affecting us. This is the premise behind designing for humans. How can we make informed design decisions if we don't understand how impressionable we are?
0: Basically, that's psychoacoustics, the title of this episode and the study of sound perception and people's physiological, psychological, and cognitive responses to sound. What do those words mean? Physiology is the study of how structures function within a living organism. Think heartbeat. Psychology is a broad field that generally studies behavior, feeling, and conscious and unconscious thought. Think social interaction. Then there's cognition, studied in the subfield of psychology called cognitive psychology, that deals more with the brain.
1: Cognitive psychology is the study of how we think and process information.
0: That's Dr. Taylor again.
1: And that's all the way from... Basic perceptual information, how do we interpret sensory signals, basic memory processes, how do we remember these things, language is a cognitive process. Things like decision making, reasoning, problem solving, those higher order ones build on sort of the lower level ones like perception and memory as
0: well. So basically, the environment affects us in different ways. Other fields that study the way we respond to our environments might include sociology, immunology, anthropology, and economics, just to name a few. But we won't add those onto the list for now.
3: Let's put physiology, psychology, and cognition into a first-person context to understand how those stimuli affect us. You walk into your office, a typical cubicle in a typical office park. As you approach your desk, you can simultaneously hear the hum of the AC unit your coworkers on the phone with that argumentative client. Okay,
0: all right well it looks like it seems like most of these are just obviously
3: And construction happening next door. Your heart starts speeding a little faster, and without even realizing it, your cortisol or stress hormone levels rise a bit.
0: This is your body's physiological response.
3: As you dive into your tasks for the day, you're distracted by the saw sound from construction next door. Every second that you focus on the saw is a second that you aren't thinking about that email you're drafting up. Not only do you lose your train of thought, but you also need to take the time to refocus on your work.
0: Some researchers have found that it takes up to 25 minutes to regain full focus. These are some of your cognitive responses.
3: Now you're a little on edge and irritable. When you finally regain concentration, your coworker asks you a question, and you make a snide comment to your neighbor about the interruption, causing social tension at work.
0: Your psychological and behavioral responses have affected your social environment. These are some of the reasons that designing an effective soundscape is so crucial. To see more specifics, check out our handout at edrpl.us that lays out the physiological, cognitive, and psychological effects of sound levels, sound frequency, and sound source, and gives recommendations for implementation. We've compiled this list, along with references to 40 peer-reviewed papers, as a resource for designers to bolster their cases for implementing better acoustical environments.
3: The effects of sound extend to other programs, too. One study reported that the students on the side of a school next to a subway lagged three to four months in reading scores. Another found that a five decibel difference in aircraft noise was equivalent to a one to two month reading delay. Hospital sounds can cause sleep disturbance and extended hospital stays in patients, as well as impaired mental efficiency and stress in staff.
2: Dr. Davis, telephone, please. Dr. Davis, telephone,
3: please. Reflective surfaces make restaurants feel more lively and popular, but reduce speech intelligibility. Slower tempo music has been found to make guests stay longer and order more. And shoppers make more impulsive purchases when they're overstimulated. These findings have both financial and experiential implications.
0: Keep in mind that sounds can vary by several metrics. While we focused our research on some sound qualities like sound level, frequency, and source, there are many other ways to characterize a sound. For example, sound complexity describes the rhythm and variability of a sound. A pure tone is super simple. The ticking clock is a bit more complex but still regular. The patter of rain is even more random. And the noise of traffic is still more complex. Now would be a good time to clear the air about a few terms that are often confused. A stimulus is something that evokes a response. Sound is an example of a stimulus. So any of those clips you just heard or even my voice right now can be considered a stimulus. An auditory stimulus can be further described as either noise or signal depending on context. Noise is background information or an undesired random disturbance like the background hum in the office. On the other side of the coin, a signal, like the phone at your desk ringing, conveys meaningful information.
3: So as we were saying, any sound stimulus is a cocktail of properties.
1: You know, it's going to be very difficult to predict one, you know, sound, how people are going to respond to it.
3: For example, music might be intended to create a calm environment but might instead create distraction and discomfort. Also, people might have specific experiences associated with any sound. Associative memory is very powerful.
1: In other words, it's always going to be a complicated problem.
3: Also keep in mind that there is a lot of variation in the ways that individual people respond to the same sound. That's what psychologists call individual differences. Dr. Taylor.
1: The idea of individual differences is that um, individuals have different preferences, cognitive abilities, experiences that impact how they process information
3: with such individual differences, how can researchers make conclusions?
1: The research is going to sort of say on average, this is the uh, the effect that individuals have to the sound, you know, but that average likely does not apply to any one individual. But if you're going to have a lot of different people within a space, sort of going to the average response isn't a bad thing.
3: So again, check out the resources we've compiled to see how specific researchers found specific results.
0: To bring the effects of altering the sonic environment closer to home, we performed a series of tests on people in our office. First we ran some cognitive tests while playing different sounds. Silence, pink noise, like white noise but with lower frequency, traffic noise, and nature noise.
3: Test 1 measured creative cognition.
0: Participants drew as many unique images as they could in 90 seconds using the shapes provided on the page. You can see an example on the handout.
3: Test 2 then measured attention and reaction time.
0: Participants completed a mental rotation task in which they described a pair of rotated letters as either mirrored or the same. Each noise did not seem to have a significantly different effect on test scores in our limited trials. However, subject feedback, on the bottom right, revealed a distaste for urban noise and slight preference for sounds of nature. Biophilic stimuli, or those that reference nature, are well known to have a host of positive effects for physical and mental well-being. Terrapin Green, an authority in biophilic design, explains that the sound of water flowing in a stream is the most effective sound masker for office noise. Many biophilic stimuli are stochastic in rhythm and unpredictable within the general character of that environment, and relatively layered in complexity.
3: In addition to the cognitive tests, we tracked designers' heart rates throughout the day while the same noises played over our office speakers. Heart rate was higher while traffic sounds were playing. Ideally, these studies would have continued for hours each day for weeks but we'll leave that for researchers with more controlled conditions and participants willing to help out for that long. Since the sonic environment has a measurable effect on people, how can we control it? What elements of sound do designers control? Sometimes we specifically choose sounds that are being introduced to a space, like specifying certain mechanical equipment, incorporating water elements like fountains. Sometimes designers even specify sound masking systems. They can also consider incorporating elements that will respond sonically to the sight, like plants that rustle in the wind. And, of course, the shape and materiality of the environment reflects, absorbs, and transmits those sounds in different ways. Remember that sounds can have unintended consequences. Dr. Taylor again
1: sound properties um can be more or less engaging or can be more or less distracting they can have an impact on um affective processing or the mood that the that the space can engender in someone now if it, if if it was a sound that was difficult to identify and it was also difficult to identify the location because it's echoing um, it would likely be a distraction because it's going to um, pull attention to try and figure it out. even a pleasant sound so i 'll go back to my bird sound. a pleasant sound where you 're not quite sure where the where it 's coming from um, could could have sort of the similar similar distraction
0: If we think about the desired effect on the human experience and what causes it, we can recreate it in other ways. For example, when a client says they want a marble floor but can't afford it, what are the important associations and experiences with it? Maybe it's not the visual component, so maybe marble printed laminate won't do it. Maybe it's the solidity, the resonance when we walk on it, the coolness of its surface, the natural variation in its texture, which can all be achieved with other materials. If we know why we are attracted to certain design elements, We can make more informed decisions when choosing them.
3: Architects should also consider other experiential effects of sound beyond physiology, cognition, and psychology. You can play with associations. What does an expensive dining hall sound like? What does a historic space sound like versus a new space? Besides using speech or music, sound can be a powerful way to convey a message.
1: Uh, you You can imagine, okay, now you're shifting to this to eating, you know, you hear plates clinking, you hear things sizzling, you hear, you know, so if you wanted to develop a, you know, sort of experience of fine dining, you would pick those sounds that would contribute to it, you know, sort of, um, if you imagined your eyes closed.
3: For a more architectural example, we'll reference the example that Goldhagen uses in her book, Peter Zumthor's St. Benedict Chapel in rural Switzerland. He considered the quality of a user's visual, auditory, and tactile experience while he chose the wooden building's shape, structural articulation, and materials. He specified that the spruce floorboards be laid crosswise over a wooden subfloor so the resulting flex would allow the floors to creak when walked upon. It gives the feeling that it's a much older building than it really is. Here's an actual recording of someone walking through the St. Benedict Chapel. Also, the way material responds sonically to a person's presence can have social implications. Choosing to make the floor of a hotel lobby hard stone versus soft carpet could make the difference between loud footsteps on the floor announcing a public entry and the lack of sound signaling a private one.
0: For those of you wondering where you can learn more about the science behind the built environment's effect on us, Here are a couple more resources that we've come across in addition to our cited papers.
3: The Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture is an organization that links neuroscience research to an understanding of human responses to the built environment.
2: The Academy for Neuroscience and Architecture, you know, they sort of try to get neuroscientists and architects talking to one another
3: and developing research projects. Their website has recommended readings, research, and even a biannual conference, which I just attended, and I'm excited to report back on to the office. There's also the Conscious Cities Project. The Conscious Cities Project is a
2: really cool project because the guy who started it, Itai Palpate, he realized that this emphasis on scientific research was going to take forever to get to a point where designers were actually paying attention and coming up with usable
3: options. Their website has an open-access journal with tons of great articles about how we can use science and tech to better design spaces. They also have a yearly conference, and all of the lectures are recorded and available on their website.
0: And on an even broader note, we wanted to mention some other fields of study to check out if you're interested in the topics we discussed today. Human-centered design is a growing field that strives to solve problems using the human perspective in all steps of the creative process. You also might be interested in behavioral economics, if you're curious about how psychology and human behavior play into economic decision making.
3: Remember that we're creating soundscapes when we create buildings. Whether or not you're aware of it, the sonic environment has had a big impact on you.
2: I mean, an overarching
3: message to architects, that is, is
2: to just understand the importance of that they're constructing not only a visual landscape or environment, but a soundscape, uh, and that they need to attend to the qualities of the soundscape because we know a lot about the relationship between human perception and cognition and sound, and we know that bad sound environments compromise learning accelerate stress, uh, raise cortisol levels, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, the first is to make the case that the soundscape is something they need to listen, to
3: think about. If architects, their clients, and the occupants of those spaces were more aware that the origin of their problems may be spurred by the environments around them, they might be able to design for a healthier space. Knowing these effects empowers us to make informed design decisions
1: would be to have the designers have the architects you know sort of put themselves mentally in the space you know I know a lot of architects do that when thinking about what it looks like if they could be uh encouraged to do you know sort of to take that mental simulation. A step or two further, where what would it be like not just what you're seeing, but to sit there and work in this space? Or what would the sounds be like in this space? Are you going to get um, interesting or distracting echoes? An important thing to know would be what is the goal of the building? Who are the occupants of that office space? You know, is it a creative firm or is it a, a phone bank where people are just calling? the usability of it is generally better if the user characteristics are taken into account prior to the design rather than sort of wedged in afterwards.
0: A space's success goes beyond low cost, high revenue, and high utilization rates. It's about the people within it and their enjoyment, health productivity, and sense of connection.